Uh, my name is Gary. If I've not had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here at Central and um, pray that uh, I hope that you are continuing to pray with us about our next lead pastor that God has chosen but has yet to reveal to us. We are in process of gathering resumes. You'll hear more about this process in the next week or two, but I do ask that this would be daily. Um, on your hearts and something that you can lift up to God. Um, Exciting, exciting days ahead. And we believe that that lead pastor will be right there in the mix uh, leading us. So um, uh, so July 4th, uh, not one of our quieter holidays that we celebrate. Um, I was over at the Regans enjoying a little picnic barbecue and um, somebody on their street set off something that was just short of a pipe bomb. Oh my goodness. Uh, just, we all jumped. Some of us had to change our clothes. It was not pretty. Uh, and then uh, we, we got to go up onto Communication Hill uh, to watch a bunch of fireworks. Um, and uh, basically what it was, was we got to see the fireworks uh, that were taking place at the San Jose Giants Stadium. And we saw the ones in downtown. And then we saw about a thousand other illegal fireworks displays. Um, and I find it rather ironic that um, we, we have so many people breaking the law um, by shooting off fireworks as we celebrate basically when our country rebelled and broke all the laws um, and uh, became declared our own independence. So it's just kind of funny how we are kind of selective in uh, what laws we're going to break. Uh, we are in this, this series called Rebels and Reformers, and uh, weeks one and two, we looked at Jeremiah and David, and these were two men who upheld the laws, who were calling people back to God's laws and God's rules and God's way of living a blessed life here on earth. Today, we are going to focus on someone who broke the rules. We are going to focus on a rebel and reformer who knew um, wins, especially some unwritten rules, needed to be stood up against and uh, to speak against them. Uh, it was, uh, in some ways, this rebel and reformer kind of was rather subtle and discreet, but here we are 2,500 years later, still talking about her. This rebel and reformer was a young female immigrant who fled her homeland as a widowed, childless refugee who lived as a homeless beggar, and God used her in an amazing way. Um, She broke some rules that never should have been made in the first place. Her name is Ruth, and I want to invite you to to look at this. We're not going to have the scriptures up on the screen today, so either you can pull it up on your Bible app, or if you want to use the Bible that's in the pew and you're not real familiar with where Ruth might be, her story begins on page 187. It's a four-chapter book, self-titled book about Ruth, and I would encourage you to, um, to follow along as we will pick through and walk through all four of those chapters. So while you're looking for that, let me uh, pause, take a deep breath, and pray, all right? Heavenly Father, I'm, <clears throat> I'm reminded that we do not choose to be rebels and reformers. You choose us. You are the initiator, 
And today, as we learn from this unlikely rebel and reformer Ruth, give us the courage we will need to respond without hesitation and full obedience to whatever it is that you are calling us to individually and as a church. Lord, this morning my goal is not to lead a Sunday morning pep rally that stirs people to action, or my aim is to get out of the way so that your Holy Spirit can enter in, can seep into us and transform comfortable churchgoers into rebels and reformers. May we be men and women who stand up against rules and laws that ought not be. Rules and laws that run contrary to your love and grace. God, I ask that you shake this place and save our city. I pray this in the name of the greatest rebel and reformer, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we will begin with the story of Ruth. Um, not just at the beginning, but actually a page before um, her story. And Ruth 1 1, um, that's kind of the, the writer, sets the stage so that we can know um, about the setting and the circumstances in which Ruth lived, which really gives rise to why um, uh, her story is so significant. But it begins by saying, In the days when the judges ruled. So, what was it like in a land with no king? Well, we actually can go back to the last verse of the book before. Not every book in the Bible is placed chronologically, but this is one of them. These are two of them that are. And so if we look at the verse before Ruth 1.1, which is not Ruth 1.0, it's actually Judges 21.25, we read that in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. There was no authority, everyone did their own thing instead of doing God's thing. Um, you can imagine how dark this time was in the history of Israel as people chose to just do whatever their strongest impulse um, desires carried them into. Continuing on in Ruth 1, uh, this is where we begin to, uh, we're introduced to some of the characters. Really weird names, and not only are they weird names, um, I think you're going to get a, a kick out of this family altogether. Kind of crazy. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's, first, uh, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the, uh, his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now remember, if you weren't aware of this, names really mean something in the Bible. Um, they were given to people as something uh, just to, to indicate who the parents thought this person was or was created to become. And we have an interesting dynamic taking place here. Elimelech uh, means that God is my king, but what we see is he is living in a way that he's not living up to his name. He is not living as though God is his king. Again, he, was kinda, he had kind of given in to culture, which was doing what they wanted rather than what God wanted. Now, uh, Naomi, Elimelech's wife, her name means pleasant, but before we get out of the first chapter, she changed her name and told people to call her Bitter instead of Naomi. So we've got the hypocrite and this woman named Bitter, and they've got two sons whose names mean puny and pining. 
okay? So great family here, huh? Not the strongest of, of boys uh, in there. And, uh, and so on top of that, and Mr. Hypocrite and, and Mrs. Depressed and their, and their two lovely boys, Puny and Pining, they head off to this land of Moab. Now, to know a little bit about Moab, um, they don't have a very good history either. Uh, this was just one of the, Israel's many sworn enemies. In Psalm 60, verse 8, it says this about Moab. Moab, the Lord says, Moab is my wash basin. On Edom, I toss my sandal. So when, when God is describing this group of people as a wash basin, <clears throat> just picture of just a real dirty bowl where people had been washing their hands and their feet over and over. And you can kind of picture just that scum ring that was circling the inside of that bowl. So you've got this really weird family uprooting and moving to this just dirty kind of cesspool place to live. And this is the setting to begin this story. Now, a lot happened. They were in Moab for 10 years. A lot happened in those 10 years. Uh, Puny and Pining married. Um, I'm sure that was, uh, that was really a proud moment for those ladies uh, when they say, hey, I'm I'm going to be Mrs. Puny. And uh, anyway, um, but they married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And if you're like me, you keep on wanting to say Oprah every time you see that name. But um, they married two um, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. So this is when we're first introduced to Ruth. So that was the good that happened in those 10 years. There was a lot of bad, a lot of hardship that took place. Elimelech passed away, leaving Naomi a widow. Shortly after that, Puny and Pining died, leaving Orpah and Ruth as widows. And not just widows, childless widows, which is to be noted. Um, Just to be clear about the social and religious culture of that day, a woman was valued by how many children she bore. And more specifically, not just by how many children, but how many male children she bore. And we still have cultures in this world today that, uh, that see women in much the same, same light, uh, an object that will help a man continue on his legacy and really not having much worth beyond that. So here we have um, Orpah and Ruth, zero children, which means they have zero worth. So what do they do? Um, they hear, uh, Naomi hears, that back in her homeland of Bethlehem, that the famine has ended, which is what drove them to Moab to begin with. And so, um, so they begin their journey back, and Naomi realizes that these two women are, as refugees, are widows, they're young, they're still in their childbearing years, and so she says to them, really out of a love for them, hey, you don't need to go back to Bethlehem, where you're going to be shunned as a foreigner, you need to go back to Moab, to your homeland, uh, because you're still eligible bachelorettes. Um, here's a rose that each of you can have to give to that one special person. Um, and so she, she encourages them to go back, and it's, it's quite a bit of uh, urging that takes place. Finally, Orpah says, okay, I'll go back. But Ruth kind of steps up, and she, this is kind of one of the first rules she breaks. She speaks up and speaks against an authority figure. Uh, she speaks against the cultural ex- expectations of her. 
And this is what takes place. Look, said Naomi, I'm a, this is Ruth 1, verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, something significant has happened here, and it's indicated in this verse. We don't know how it took place or when it took place, but this young Moabite girl who grew up worshiping pagan gods has recognized the God of Naomi. And not just recognized the God of Naomi, she has received the God of Naomi. So she is now following God. Ruth chose God, and we are going to see how God also chose Ruth to do some amazing things. And Ruth throughout this remains fiercely loyal, fiercely loyal to her widowed and depressed mother-in-law, fiercely loyal um, and loving to someone that really could not offer her protection, which was so necessary for a woman in her condition and that culture. So the two women, verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So what we have here, Ruth is a young, undocumented immigrant. She is a refugee in search of food. The 21st century has given us a glimpse through our televisions, and some of you have been a part of not just viewing it on television, but going to to be an active part of uh, fighting against this, but we have seen what life is like for refugees, whether they are refugees on the run because of violence or because of starvation We have seen up-to-the-minute pictures and videos of fleeing refugees, up-to-the-minute pictures and videos of refugees who fled and died. I want you to know that the biblical story, not just Ruth, but the whole biblical story, is primarily about immigrants. Every time we see the people of Israel, it just seems like they're on the run. They were a displaced people over and over. In fact, in the New Testament, they're even referred to, uh, we as Christ followers are referred to as aliens, foreigners, and strangers. If you go back to even like Abram, he was uprooted from his homeland. Uh, Jacob and his family became immigrants who fled to Egypt during a severe famine. 400 years later, Moses led an entire nation of immigrants out of Egypt a journey of 40 years that eventually led them to Palestine in that area of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Um, So all of this was taking place, but I want you to understand that um, exile and immigrant really characterized so many people that we look up to and, and, and emulate their faith. So here they find themselves, Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem. Um, They don't have a penny to their name. They just know that they're very hungry. Um, They are in a desperate situation. Uh, They did not have 
technically what we would call a welfare system for people in that position. But there was a law that God had given Moses that was still in effect that gave them an opportunity um, to, to eat, and that was called gleaning. Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, we read a little bit about this. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, saying, The Lord be with you. And so gleaning was this way for the poor, the widow, the orphan, uh, these people that God had such a huge heart for, but were often overlooked in society. This was a way for them to... um, to basically, well, let me read it in Deuteronomy 20. Uh, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And in other places, um, God instructs these people as they are harvesting not to harvest all the way to the outer edge. Allow people, um, these, these widows, the poor, the orphans, to be able to find ways to feed themselves by um, gathering grain from, from these edges. I read this in one of the commentaries just to give you a better idea of gleaning. Um, gleaning, if you were gleaning, this was a source of, of deep shame. Um, it was a public display of poverty. Um, I read this, the gleaning of fallen grain was mere subsistence living, much like trying to eke out survival today by recycling aluminum cans or rummaging through a dumpster for a McDonald's burger and fries. This is what Ruth is doing. Remember what she could have gone back to. And this is what she is choosing to do with this loyal love for Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now, in this foreign culture, uh, she was also this, she was putting herself in danger by going and doing this, um, surrounded by a bunch of men that were working in those fields. And remember, this is a time when people were not following God; uh, they were doing as they saw fit. And so Boaz recognizes the precarious situation Ruth is in to be taken advantage of, uh, to be abused physically, sexually. And so Boaz stands up for her, and he instructs his male servants not to lay a hand on her. And so you can kind of understand how helpful and um, how good this was in God providing Boaz as a, as a shield for her. And then Boaz learns why Ruth is willing to put herself at risk. Why Ruth is doing this. Chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Everything Ruth is doing is on behalf of her mother-in-law. She is doing this to benefit her mother-in-law. 
This is a very selfless act, and we're going to see how this even grows and continues and what she is about to do for Naomi. Um, continuing on to verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the, in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she, refreshed, uh, then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And in case you are the one person in here who doesn't know how much an ephah is, 30 pounds of grain, 30 pounds. So, so I want to kind of, I know we're looking at Ruth as rebel and reformer, but I want you to understand who Boaz is and who, who, what his character is like. Um, the question is not, is Boaz a man of power? It was very clear that he had power. Um, just the mere fact in that culture that he was a man gave him power over Ruth in that day. But not only was um, he a male, but he was, he was a wealthy landowner. He obviously carried a lot of weight and significance. So the question is not, does Boaz have power? The question is, what will Boaz do with his power? Now, we could use a couple of words to describe someone like Boaz in our culture today. Powerful, or maybe even the word privileged. This was a man of privilege. Um, privilege exists in our culture today, not necessarily by the strivings of those who are considered privileged, but there are people based upon the color of their skin or their economic background who have access to a way of life that others do not. Boaz, the question is not, are you privileged? Do you have power? The question is, what are you going to do with this privilege? What are you going to do with this power? And what stands out to me is Boaz did not just follow the letter of the law. Boaz could have satisfied the law by saying, sure, Ruth, you are welcome to pick up whatever's left over, uh, whatever gets dropped by my harvesters. Um, we're not going to glean up to, uh, we're not going to harvest up to the edge of the fields. Um, that, that could be yours. That's, that's kind of what the law required, and he could have gotten away with that. But what we see is he went over and above in providing for Ruth. She basically earned almost 20 times what the male harvesters earned that day. In other words, Boaz was breaking a rule himself, saying equal pay for women, and went beyond that as he was caring for her. Ruth's take-home pay as much as 20 times. And so when she gets home with this 30-pound bag, um, I guess maybe the one thing that Boaz could have done is carried the 30 pounds for her. I, you know, I'm just saying. But um, so, so Ruth gets back and shows all of this to Naomi. And Naomi is just overwhelmed. She's like, who is this that has shown such favor to you and to us? And she explains... Um, that his name was, was Boaz and Naomi starts putting the pieces together and she's like, this, this is a good man. 
and and not so. Um, uh, she basically bluntly says to Ruth, "Go marry that man." Okay, don't let this guy slip through your fingers. And so she gives Ruth specific instructions, ways that she can kind of break some rules to get Boaz's attention and initiate um, a proposal. But Ruth kind of has her own twist on it. So Ruth chapter 3, verse 7, well, we're going to pick this up. But what I want you to hear, if you have heard a sermon on this or if you've done a Bible study on this, I want to be really clear and say, this is not a romantic love story, as it's often made out to be. This is really um, a rebellious, beautiful picture of a selfless act on the part of Ruth. In other words, I'll explain more on this, but this is not something she's doing because she's just overwhelmed and she senses her biological clock is ticking. So she's going to go through with this with Boaz, or she just sees, well, you know, I wouldn't call myself a gold digger, but I've got a really good opportunity here. I'm not going to let, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. Okay. Here's what happens. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, I don't know exactly what that means. Do you? Huh? Little, little joke. Okay. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. In other words, all of this work has taken place, and it's not too uncommon for the owner to stay close to this grain pile to keep people from stealing it in the middle of the night. So there he is. He's lying by this uh, grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, can you imagine how countercultural it was for Ruth to propose to Boaz? Because that's what was taking place. I mean, even in our day, can we admit it still might, for some of us, feel a little weird to hear that it was the, the girl that proposed to the man? I know, speaking for myself, it was really awkward when Beth proposed to me at the foot of my bed. Um, just kidding. I wasn't surprised at all. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, no, the, reason, um, the reason that Ruth did this was because what was at stake was Naomi's well-being. Again, Ruth breaking rules, not so she could be the primary beneficiary, but for the welfare of others. See, what this was going to do, if Boaz accepted her proposal, a couple of things could happen. One, it would mean that the land that was Elimelech's would stay in the family. So Naomi is not left without land, is not left without all that comes with that land. And in marriage, if she were able to have a child, then the child she bore could continue on Naomi's family line. And that child would be the recipient of this inheritance as this took place. Rebels and reformers are characterized by seeking the welfare of others above their own wishes and hopes. And it's not that a rebel and reformer won't receive benefits or blessings. It's just that those personal benefits are not what is driving them. It's not their motive. 
Rebels and reformers live sacrificially, and they love selflessly. Now, what about this guardsman-redeemer, this kinsman-redeemer thing? This is um, uh, not something in our culture that, that we do, but again, it helps to kind of reach back and to understand what's taken place. The kinsman-redeemer law required that if a man, a married man died, then the nearest relative would need to marry his spouse to continue their family line. So be really careful who your brother marries. That's basically what we're saying here. Um, and then there's also another law, it's not just the kinsman redeemer law that, um, that Ruth is pushing onto Boaz. It's also, there's a leveret law and it requires um, that that purchase of land uh, be made and they are, are not able to sell it. It is, is going to be, if basically Ruth is saying, if you marry me, and we have kids, you don't get the land. Our son will. So when you think about it, Boaz doesn't have a whole lot to gain in this. But he is drawn to her, not by what he can get out of this relationship, but by her loyalty and by her strength of character. Now Boaz responded with integrity. He knew that there was a kinsman who was in line in front of him. So he went to that man to see if that man would marry Ruth, and then if not, Boaz was more than willing to do so. Ruth chapter 4, verse 2, and I'm reading from the the message translation. It just seemed a little easier to understand what was taking place. Boaz then gathered 10 of the town elders together and said, sit down here with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to his relative, the piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from the country of Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want it. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here and before the town elders. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so. Uh, I'll know so I'll know where to stand. You're first in line to do this, and I'm next after you. And he said, I'll buy it. But then Boaz added, you realize, don't you, that when you buy the field from Naomi, you also get Ruth the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the Redeemer responsibility to have children with her to carry on the family inheritance. Then the relative said, "Uh, I can't do that. (laughs) I jeopardize my own family's inheritance. You go out and buy it. You can have my rights. I can't do it. Boaz agrees because of Ruth's character to marry her, understanding that this was not something that he himself would directly benefit from. Again, we see that rebels and reformers love sacrificially. They live very selflessly. So let's think through what are some applications that we can learn from this rebel rule-breaking Ruth. Let me just kind of pose a a few questions. Um, Some rebels and reformers, when called upon, will choose to serve a family member in need rather than pursue marriage. Do you know of anyone who has done something like that? I know of someone in our fellowship right now that is currently her situation in life. She has chosen to selflessly serve a family member in need 
rather than pursuing a relationship that would culminate in marriage. As a rebel and reformer, are you crazy enough to let God use you even though you are not financially independent and secure? Ruth was. As a rebel and reformer, would you be willing to love a certain person or demographic so much that you would willingly uproot and move from your homeland for that person or for those people? Now, not just Ruth, but again, Boaz, rebel and reformer, um, kind of thinking through that lens, what if you gave significant portions of your wealth to feed the poor? What if you used your privilege to bring justice and equality to women? Inequality was never God's plan at all. So what if you used your power to break some rules? As a rebel and reformer, are you willing to stoop to humiliating actions in order to care for someone in need? Are you willing to take on that extra job, that demeaning job so that you have enough to feed and to care for someone and your family in need. As a rebel and reformer, will you choose to live where it's best for your family rather than where it's best for your own professional advancement? In a culture that says, do your own thing, Ruth chose to do God's thing. In a culture that we live in, that shouts, do your own thing. Will you be a rebel and reformer who chooses to do God's thing? You know, the more, um, the more I read and reflected on the life of Ruth, the more she reminded me of a rebel and reformer who is very close to me. My mom. Now, if you were to ask people that knew my mom... Do you think of Joyce as a rebel? I can guarantee they would all say no, not at all. She does not strike me as a rebel. But I tell you, as roughly 1,000 people filed by her casket and paid their respects to uh, our family, the word that we heard describing her the most was servant. Servant. Rebels and reformers are servants. Rebels and reformers seek the welfare of others in a way that's very countercultural to the way of life around them. Mom was always serving. She was, whether it's at church, at home, in the community, mom was always serving, putting herself out there for others. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the more memorable and deeply rooted pictures of serving that my mom did, especially in our home, was uh, in the mid-90s, my dad was in a a really bad accident on the highway. It was a head-on collision, and he spent four months on a hospital bed in in our living room, and uh, his jaws were wired shut. He had kind of this halo of steel through his leg. It kind of looked like spokes from a bicycle to kind of as his knee began to uh, heal. And so because he wasn't um, able to talk very well, with his jaws wired shut and all the constant needs, my mom for four months slept on the couch in the living room. 
Now, someone in the church found out about, well, they all found out about it, but there was one person that thought, you know, if he needed something and he can't speak, it would really be good if he had a bell. So this person gave my dad a bell that he could ring every time he needed something. And this lasted all of about a day and a half. (laughs) And one day my dad picks up and shakes the bell and no sound. He shakes the bell again and no sound. My mom had cut the clapper out of it. (laughs) Rebels and reformers are those who know when to humbly respond to the bell of service and also know when to stand up and silence it. Rebels and reformers serve, but they know when to stand up and break the rules and to make their own noise, even in subtle and discreet ways. So how's the story end? Boaz and Ruth did marry. And we see that Ruth did have a child who would receive 100% of the inheritance. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 and 16. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Obed would be the heir of Elimelech's land, of his fortune. But what Obed became better known for is that he went on to be the father of Jesse, who would go on to be the father of the rebel and reformer that Kyle was teaching about last week, David. And as you might recall from last week, there was another rebel and reformer in the line of David, and his name is Jesus. So let me kind of sum up by this, saying this. Are you willing to be a rebel and reformer who gives birth, so to speak, to a movement that outlives you? Are you willing to break the rules so that Jesus can break in and continue doing a work even after you're gone? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We'll pray and... um, wrap things up. Lord, this is a lot to take in. She, Ruth, uh, packed a whole lot of living into these four chapters. Give us the servant's heart of a rebel and reformer. Give us wisdom to know when to humbly serve and when to silence the bell by speaking up. Give us wisdom to know what we should stand for and what is right. Give us the strength to oppose inequality. And may we, like Ruth, do things today that result in future generations coming to know Jesus. Amen.